Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome back. This conversation is with Dame Commander Heather Rabatz, who's had an incredible career. Check this out. She's been a barrister, a BBC governor, the youngest ever chief executive of both Merton and Lambeth councils, a boss at Channel 4, a director of the Bank of England. She was the first woman to be appointed a director of the FA and was also chief executive of none other than Millwall FC. And all this from a woman who certainly did not do well at school. Heather is full of lessons, insight and wisdom. And I hope you enjoy listening. Morning, Heather. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Oh, uh, yes, a bit tired. It was an early start, but, you know, that's most of my days are early starts. Absolutely. Well, so we spoke on the uh, on the phone a couple of days ago mm-hmm. in prep for this, and you were talking about um, that you were spinning plates at the yes. time. I mean, that's the story of your life, isn't it? A... Uh, it is pretty much, spinning plates, some of them crashing down around me and thinking, I'm not sure I can fix that plate anymore. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, as with many people, we juggle complicated lives. Um, but for me... I have loved the sort of range and diversity of my working day. Now, you are a dame commander, right? I am. I am a dame commander. Practice I, your curtsy now. <laughs> I, I should have done, really. Yeah. I've had a few dames on, but you, so that I think you're, that makes you the loftiest that, that's been on here. <laughs> oh, so, well. I know. I know I'm go. privileged. <laughs> I have to say, I always felt the name dame was sort of complicated because it reminds me of pantomime parts you know and whether I would be the back end of the <laughs> of uh, widow twenkies horse or whatever it might be but uh, yes no it was a, it was a real honor and I think um, obviously it was for services to football and diversity and equality and you know those challenges we know remain as large today as ever so it's uh, a recognition of the work that I but countless others do in that space if you as a young girl or mm-hmm. a- Let's say 10-year-old. <laughs> well, no, let's say 11-year-old because you failed your 11-year-old. Yes. yes, I'm sadly that old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If the 11-year-old you was told that she would go on to become a dame commander, would she have believed you? No. No, no chance? No, chance. <laughs> no absolute chance. I mean, I was, you know, I, uh, my mother was Jamaican and my father English, mixed race, pretty much a total white school, felt, you know, on the outside, didn't do well at school, hence I failed my level plus. Um, and, you know, the future for then, you know, when you failed your level plus was very bleak. You weren't going to go and do anything. You weren't going to achieve anything. Um, I suppose if I knew anything, it was, I, and this was definitely linked to both my mum but and also my dad, was I refused to be sort of written off at 11. I watched lots of other kids who were really talented being written off, but I somehow managed to hold on to a belief that that was not going to be my destiny. What it was, how it would pan out, of course, no, you just don't know, but it was just 
no, this is not good. I won't be put into that box. It's interesting because people do get labelled, and I've spoken to mm. a couple of other people who've mentioned this about being labelled and and how destructive that can be. Mm. And like you said, people do get written off, and then it's quite easy to internalise that. So, how did you not let that hold you back? It's it's really it's a very difficult question to answer because. It comes from within yourself. I think at that point, the, your parents, it, you know, are massively important in uh, giving you that sense of a love, but b, um, you know, my mum, you know, who'd been engaged in the civil rights movement, you know, whose family can trace their the slave ships that brought them to Jamaica was in her own way, you know, just absolutely you do not. You know, she used to say to me, you know, you either lie down and die or you get up and fight. So just get up, girl. Just get up. And that's what I just keep doing. I get up. <laughs> I tell you, you've got some cracking quotes. That's oh, another, I didn't even, I've, I've written a few down, but this is a new one to add to oh, the list. Well, my mum had a whole panoply of them, some of which I won't go into on the radio, but uh, when uh, she didn't think I was doing things I should be doing. So, uh, what were their? What were your parents' reaction then when you did fail? Fail your eleven plus? Oh, they were really upset. They were very, you know, they both believe passionately in education, um, and uh, they knew what it meant. You know, the education is the great. You know, it opens the door, and suddenly doors were closing all around me, um, and. You know, they it didn't stop them being supportive, but they knew it was a significant moment in my in my life, and I think that's why they were even more, particularly my mum, forthright around you know get, getting up and just go moving forward. You've spoken about how your your dad always sort mm. of you know was very supportive and, mm, and backing yeah, of you, yeah. and for you to fail the M plus, and also I mean you had a you had a rough time at school, yeah, didn't you? Because yeah. because obviously with yeah. your background and your yeah. heritage, yeah. you stood out, yeah. and people, as we know, kids can be kids cruel, can, can't they? they? Definitely can be cruel. Yes, and I think the experience of being bullied is sadly something that happens to two, you know millions of of young uh, young people. And my, you know, it was before you had anti-bullying policies in schools and all of that. But I think it was just feeling that, you know, my mum and dad were doing all they could to try and uh, create a safe harbour. Um, and I don't know what it was with that, that was within me that enabled me ultimately to stand the ground. But I, those experiences are so formative. You never lose them. You can instantly be taken back to the playground or the failing of the 11 plus. But, and it is the memory of that, I think, that also still gives me the sort of strength to you know, start <laughs> the next day because there are always challenges. They don't go away, even though one gets slightly older and... Hmm. I hope wiser, but there are lots of very successful people that spring to mind who, yes, who have refer to one incident That's in their right. childhood or whatever, yeah. where perhaps a teacher has said you won't amount That's to anything. Right. Yeah. To what degree then is your schooling experience fueled your drive? Uh, massively so, and I think it's quite an interesting shared characteristics of people who are in quotes called leaders of, which is that they've often had that. Uh, formative moment which where something turned for them uh, and I think you know some of the most effective leaders have used those moments of experience of being bullied or insecurity and turned it into a real source of resilience mm. uh, and I think that that for me it has been absolutely what I've tried to do through my my life. So that kind of adversity making you or breaking you, do you think that is a choice? It's No, it's not a simple choice. It's work, you work on it. You know, you just, you have to work on it the whole time. Hmm. Because there are moments where, as I said, you get taken back to the playground and your fear and your insecurity sort of arising in the back of your throat. And it's about how do you sort of regroup in the in the moment so that you can not give in to that, like, oh, I'm so scared, I don't know what to yeah. do, I don't know what to say. And I, I talk a lot about people say, well, you know, you're fearless. I go, no, I'm scared a lot of the time. But it's about turning that fear into a 
different source of energy. We can all relate to that being taken back to... Yeah. you know painful childhood memories mm. we've all, we've all kind of got them uh, and having trigger points essentially so then okay as someone then who clearly you know will feel the fear i suppose and do it anyway then so when those moments do come up in your present mm. life or recent mm. life how do you cope with it like what do you do <laughs> i think at the time you it's sort of instinctive and it's, it's slightly acting at a subconscious level. What you're aware of is the discomfort. What are you aware of is, oh, gosh, I'm not yeah. sure how to handle this situation. Uh, somebody's just said something or what I thought was going to happen is now not happening. And you can feel that sort of, oh, gut-wrenching yeah, tension. Yeah. Um, yes, I think, and I think it's just about sort of, I, I just think you have to just hold it together. So yesterday, for example, I got a very difficult piece of news around um, a film I'm involved in before I was chairing a theatre board meeting. And I was just in a sort of state of shock. But the fact that I had to go into that meeting two minutes later meant I had to sort of marshal myself. And I think that's what... And by doing that, you can go back to thinking about that crisis in a different way. Yeah. So it's, okay, marshalling yourself. And I guess, you know, each time you do that, it becomes easier the next time. Yes. I mean, so as I said, you know, there's, there are many times, you know, it just, it happens without conscious thought. Sometimes you have to really um, work it through in, in the moment. You talk about a safe harbour. Mm. So we've spoken about your drive coming through, at least in part, some of your tough experiences. Mm. As well, though, how important was that safe harbour in enabling you to go on and become a Dame Commander? Uh, <laughs> I think safe harbours uh, are hugely important and safe harbours are, I think, um, your friends, your family, your home, uh, and knowing that somewhere there is this... Uh, place where you are loved and you love other people and I think I've always not always successfully mind you <laughs> try to um, hold on to that you know we I, I am a very driven person I am somebody who has wanted to do difficult things for all sorts of weird and wonderful reasons and I you know I'm a, probably a bit of a workaholic you know and um, that's my way of uh, probably dealing with all sorts of issues that are still lurking beneath. Um, and, you know, you, you to work and to be driven brings great rewards, but there's also a price to be paid. Um, and I think it's about understanding the choices that you're making um, and that, that they're not easy choices. You talk about being a workaholic mm. and, and having <laughs> and having issues mm. um, in there. Now, we've all got issues, haven't we? We've all got issues, yes. E Everybody. Everyone <laughs> has issues. There's yep. no doubt about yep. that. How important is it to be aware of them and how important is it to actually work on them? I think he, really important. Really important, and it, and uh, believe you me, I have not cracked this at no all. No one has. No, nobody has. No, I think, I think it's about having insight. It's about thinking about what happened, either in a meeting or in a board discussion, about your behaviour, and was there something that went on there that was triggered by one of those memories, or did you, you know, did you did you conduct yourself in the way that you really um, fundamentally believe in did you let yourself down and I think having that insight and also really trying to hear feedback from other people mm. which I don't find easy yeah. I can get very defensive of course we none of us do uh, you get that feeling but, again. um and I I have somebody who's worked with me uh, I can't begin to say it for a huge number of years uh, and he does give me that that feedback because I'm sort of known as a bit I can be a bit scary. I don't think... I, I know, I'm so, still surprised by that. I used to be told that men had often went to the toilet before they came to see me, which I thought, really? <laughs> um, so, uh, I, that, but for anybody, I think really listening to feedback, or it, it, it's, you only get to deal with those issues if you hear the feedback, and, that, and you, you've got to stay open to that. Yeah. Um, I've, again, spoken to various people, and something that's come up is the idea of... As well, self-questioning, yeah, as opposed to being self-critical, 
Are you able to steer that part? I think, well, um, uh, sometimes I tip over into being more self-critical. But I try try to be self-questioning. Do you think women are more open to to, uh, accepting their issues and working on them than men? I don't like to generalise. No, I think what we as women are better at than men is sharing it with others. Uh, I think we feel... Uh, on the whole, most women I know will talk as I am now with you, but also with each other about that. I think uh, for for men, historically, it has been harder. I think what's been really brilliant in recent times, for example, in the whole mental health campaign, is men standing up and saying they've had mental health issues mm. and opening up that whole very successful people, uh, talking about those vulnerabilities, which we've all had at times. And I think... Uh, I hope that that sort of is slightly resetting um, the the sort of ability of all of us to talk about, you know, our fears and hopes. Yeah. I mean, I, whenever I've managed people, I always I always say it's not to do with all those weird and wonderful management books, which I can't be doing with most of the time. It is about understanding that people bring their hopes and fears and insecurities into work mm. and how they are managed and supported and motivated has to take cognizance of that human spirit yeah we all need examples of to show us what is possible and that includes men opening up and speaking out doesn't it because it's easy to say oh men are uh, you know don't deal with this as well and i guess i alluded to that slightly in the question (laughs) um but actually if culturally or historically that isn't the case well then inevitably men will struggle and we pay a price for that i think that's right and i think you know it is about how we learn it is about how we learn and that's why when people like rio ferdinand stood up in for millions of people that was really significant and men Mm -hmm. Um, was very significant, that he opened himself up to that uh, level of vulnerability. And that took real courage. That Mm. takes real courage. And uh, I thought that was, you know, they are markers in the journey that we are all on um, about how we, you know, how we learn about ourselves and hopefully how we get better. Yeah. Vulnerability, as you said there, I mean, absolutely key words. I mean, so you're in here, very successful, but then here we are within 10 minutes talking about having issues. And that vulnerability, there's a huge strength in vulnerability and owning one's shadow side. Yes, I I think so. I think it's also, it's about knowing that um, in terms of how you conduct yourself, in terms of leadership, in terms of all the things that I do, it is about understanding that level of vulnerability, but also about having the confidence to, you know, go forward and to hopefully bring people together and help catalyse change or whatever it might be, the nature of one of the plates that I'm I'm spinning. Um, because you can't, you can't sit in the corner and be going, oh, I feel terribly vulnerable today and I'm not sure I can speak. Hmm. It is about, okay, yeah, I am feeling vulnerable, but listen, we've got to deal with this. We've got to get on with this. And whether that's uh, running a business or whether that's being involved in a theatre or football where you're trying to press for change, yeah, that's what you have to do. And also, I think it's that recognition that you, you mentioned, which is, so everybody feels vulnerable. So once you realise everybody's feeling vulnerable, and even though you're, yeah. you know, you're facing captains of industry or whatever it might be, then it's it's much easier. You feel suddenly you're on an equal footing. I remember going to actually a launch party, and invariably everyone's, you know, one feels sort of a bit anxious. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and then I think, but telling yourself, hang on, everyone feels like this. Everybody feels like this. And then that takes a lot of pressure off immediately. It does. Right, just back to the safe harbour. You shared a bedroom with your sister for yeah. years and years yeah, and years, yeah. and you're still tight as anything, aren't you? Yeah. That must be very strength-giving. I think, yeah, it has been. And uh, we're very different people. But uh, as we've both got older, I think we've got closer. Um, and that's, again, it goes back to family. It's because, of course, you share the, that memory of that journey. Um, and it was tough for her and it was tough for me. And we both know that in a way that nobody else does. Mm. Is she as driven as you? No. I pro- she probably, <laughs> I think she looks at me and goes, why do you want to live like that? Yeah. Why do you want to get up at five o'clock in the morning and finish late at night? Yeah. Uh, and she's got a point. <laughs> she's got a point. Yeah. Uh, but it is, yeah, it, it, we are, we, we, that's what I mean, we are very different. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, and you, 
I, I don't know what it was in me that just said, I won't lie down, but that, that has just been my mantra, really. Another one. Crikey. <laughs> Honestly, you've got a book of them. Um, right, final word on Safe Harbour before we get into, you know, your career. Mm. If you had to think of kind of the key elements to building a Safe Harbour or having one, what, what springs to mind? I, I think it's, it's trying to f- ensure that there is a place where you can express your fears and mm. anxieties and that you won't... You're not going to be judged in that moment. Um, you know, say that's what a safe harbour is, that you can strip yourself bare and you will still be loved. And that, there are very few places you do that uh, and you don't always succeed in doing that. But I think that's what a safe harbour is. And, you know, I try with my family to convey a sense of you know whatever happens you know i always will unconditionally love you yeah and how important is it to to say to vocalize that i think it's really important yeah yeah because we forget yeah uh, yeah as and we it's... get older you know it's my my son's in his i'm not gonna say how old he is <laughs> but he's got he's a father of a uh, of a lovely my granddaughter and uh yeah he's been um, hugely important to me right so there you were um Left school at 16. Mm-hmm. Teacher said you were at best going to work in a shop. <laughs> Trained as a barrister, but you made your name as the youngest local authority chief executive, right? Yeah. So what? how do you go from leaving at 16 <laughs> to, to, to doing that? What, what, Who what, knows? I mean, what, was there a rocket somewhere in the middle there? Like, um, I, No, there wasn't. I, well, I suppose there was. I, I um, you know, I loved... I loved uh, being a barrister, but it was very tricky with a young son. Um, and... Um, so I, I sort of fell into the public sector, I, I, you know, because it was you could work, pick up your kids from yeah. the nursery and all those things. And I was really interested in public policy. You know, it, it, when you're dealing as a barrister, you're dealing in the moment of crisis in people's lives. You think, well, are there ways in which that crisis could have been mitigated if that young mother had access to decent housing or whatever it might be? So I sort of I fell into local government and um, I just found I could swim in organisations and I could, ju- I just loved it and I could do it. And people said, oh, you're quite good at this. Uh, and so uh, I was very fortunate. I, I, you know, I was promoted. I was given more responsibility. Um, and then I applied for a, a chief exec role. Uh, and I, yes, I became, I think I was 32, the youngest chief exec wow. in Crikey. the country. Yeah. And then you think, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what do I? I always remember walking in the first day. It was the London Borough of Merton, where in fact Theresa May was my deputy leader of the Conservatives, uh, who was formidable then, actually. Uh, and um, I remember walking in, and the security guard saying to said, "Good morning, Chief." And I thought I had a military person behind me, and I looked behind me, and there was nobody. And um, he said, good morning, Chief. I said, are you talking to me? And he said, yes. And he was like, terror. And I said, no, no, my name's Heather. What's your name? I can still remember it now that yeah. Terry was his name. And I said, no, no. And I said, you know, it's like first day at school, isn't it? A bit scary. You know, my office was on the 18th floor yeah. of some tower block or something. And um, I remember then one of my four assistant chief execs come to see me saying, well, mom, I really don't think you should let the, the security people, you know, call you Heather because it will diminish the respect, particularly as you're so young. I thought he's trying to get on the good side of me. I said, no, no, I'm Heather. And um, I realised, of course, if I was Heather, then he couldn't be called, I think it was called some ridiculous name, sir, or something. Uh, and I remember going on around this cultural change and how, you know, you have to look about people are valued, not for their places in hierarchy, but for what they can contribute. And uh, ultimately, you know, he he left uh, the organisation. And um, his final day, he came to see me, he said, well, Mum, you know, the best of luck. So my cultural change programme failed with him. (laughs) (laughs) It shows then that it's important to stick to your guns. And that's impressive that you resisted that, I guess. So sticking to your guns was obviously then a key element in your success. I think if, you know, I've led various different organisations. One of the um, points I often make when talking about leadership is about authenticity, Hmm. that you have to have a moral compass. Uh, And for me, that goes back to where I started, you know, respect, 
values, valuing other people and what they have to contribute and what they have to say. Uh, and now I'm not saying I was perfect at it. And then probably people saying, actually, she was awful. We didn't like her. But that's what you have to hold on to. And I knew that uh, it was really important. If you're going to start to get people to work in different ways, then I, I, I absolutely don't believe in command and control. No. I had uh, Sam Warburton, Lions mm. and Wales captain on, and he said the first thing, the kind of first lesson was like, know, you, know who you are yeah. to be successful in sport. So and clearly, to be successful in life... It is. You have to away. know. You have to know who you are. Um, I think knowing who you are and staying true to yourself is what gives you the sort of anchoring when the storms and there are always storm clouds gather mm. uh, and sort of hold you feet, you know, to the ground. And you know, I've watched people who don't have that, and that you come, you unravel. You yeah. do unravel. You come untethered. So, yeah. and knowing who you are now, it's all. It can almost sound a little cliche, but that. I get, so to me, that means yeah, your values. What, yeah. What's important? Yeah, who's exactly. important? Yeah, yeah. What 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 your beliefs are? Yeah. It's the same to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those values you try and always abide by in whatever walk of life you're involved in. So it's very important to actually establish what your values are because a lot of people don't know. Well, no, I think that's true, and that's why I think knowing your values, knowing who you are, uh, is a fun is fundamental. I, I, both to I think enjoying and living your life but if you're uh, placed with the responsibility of leadership hugely so yeah okay so we've got three key things we've got safe harbor knowing who you are and looking to own and grow through your issues (laughs) right those are three thus far okay (laughs) that's not a bad little compass to keep one on track hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know Cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain. I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So you talk about you're good at swimming in organisations. Mm. And, you know, who doesn't want a promotion, right? Yeah. And obviously you got pretty blooming yeah. good at it to, to yeah. rise to the very top yeah. at 32. And some people uh, are better within organisations than others. What do you think are the key elements then to succeeding, you know, organisations that are often very bureaucratic? Oh gosh, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> hour in itself, really. I, I think I think it's about how you build lesions of interest, how you share a consensus about the the, the direction of travel, and how you build that uh, so that everybody thinks, okay, we know where we need to go to. But actually, you give people sufficient room for manoeuvre and you empower them so that the way they get there is also their own way now that is really it is not easy it's really complicated and there's you know there are lots of restraints obviously if you're in public organizations but I think that I think it was trying to figure that space out that I've spent a long time in and that's that for me was why I felt that we could make things happen in quite complicated environments 
Well, you distilled an hour's talk. Well, very well done. <laughs> so uh, Merton, walk in the park, essentially, right, compared to Lambeth, which yeah. was described as the worst job in local government. So, I mean, you were a glutton for punishment in many ways. And you say, what? It, it was literally advertised as the worst. It was. I mean, that's a, and it was. a, cle- a clever advert. <laughs> it was a very clever advert, and it was true. <laughs> so what, you just thought, I want as big a challenge as possible? Yeah. Yeah, I think I just... I could give you another quote. I feel like this... Go I'm on. Becoming I, a, I love a quote. I'm, I'm becoming quote. a sort of cliche here. No, that's fine. Um, I love it. Which is, it's better to live one day as a tiger than a hundred days as a sheep. And I sort oh, of think... Man. I sort of think, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, But also, the great thing about Lambeth was that, you know, the town hall is in Brixton. And mm-hmm. Brixton is the black soul of this country in many ways. And, of course, it being uh, a place of black protest. Uh-huh. And therefore... I, I actually felt at, really at home in Lambeth. I mean, the challenges were huge. I mean, were, uh, beyond I, I could have uh, imagined. Uh, but you know, where in every organisation, um, there are wonderful people, mm. and it's just about finding them. And you know, there were some. I worked with some amazing councillors. Uh, with people who'd been in Lambeth for years um, who had quietly tried to cope within chaos. Uh, and I think, you know, over those five years, uh, it's, it was about the collective efforts of many people. Uh, and I, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But, my gosh, it burnt me out by the end really? of that time. Yeah. How long were you there? Five years. I did my, you know, I had a five-year term and I said by the end of it, you know, we'll be out of the worst performance leagues and we will have, I think one of my proudest moments was um, ensuring we got a clean audit on the pension fund because it had been wow. raided in the past. I mean, how exciting is that? But, yeah, uh, uh, but yeah so uh, it, it was a really important time in my life. Um, it was incredible. People worked enormous hours uh, to try and make the changes that the people and the residents of Lambeth deserved. So did you have a vision in your head then of what you needed to achieve and how you would achieve it and just kept that at the forefront of your mind for the whole of that five years? Yeah. Uh, uh, there yeah. we go. Yeah. So you, don't, you can't bounce around from one thing to the next. No, so. it's about, and that's one of the challenges. I mean, of course you get bounced around by events. Mm. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but I think you, what we tried to do is to say we, there was a direction of travel that you shared with you know, managers, uh, the sort of senior directors work through with them, and try, you try to sort of hold that as a as a guiding path in your head the whole time. I uh, read a f- lovely story about when Nelson Mandela yeah. came to Lambeth, oh, yeah. and what a fantastic example! Oh. So he stepped out and did a bit. I mean, a little like you did when you were called chief, and you're like, yeah. no, 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 I'm having none of that. But and can you just tell us what he did? Yeah. And I think this, this speaks to the power, the, the immense power of humility. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think, well, one of my abiding treasured memories is Mandela coming. Uh, to Brixton and he came with Prince Charles and you know you can imagine all of the protocols and actually Prince Charles was just incredible he just stood back the whole time and there were two things oh oh, gosh there were so many things that struck me about Mandela Uh, he had a very young white main bodyguard and you thought oh okay that's interesting he comes out of the car you realise how frail he is his knees and that people just wanted to touch him. It was like, mm. you know, the Messiah. They just wanted to touch him. Uh, and he talks absolutely, and he says to the security guard, what's your name? And, the, and you can see the guard is just, he's virtually speechless. He's, uh, and that, it was this great sense of humanity. And this young uh, bodyguard, I think his name was Rory, just very gently protects him from literally people wanting just to touch him. Mm. And uh, I heard the story that when he he was getting up to leave the hotel, he would go and talk to all the staff mm. because the staff in hotels in five o'clock in the morning are usually the black shift. Mm. And you just, you, you were humbled yourself just to stand next to him. He was just oh it brings tears to my eyes yeah, now yeah. yeah i mean just talking about him there's a power even just in the kind of the name yeah Mandela, isn't yeah i mean there's um there was a zulu name for him which i can't now recall but it's the man who cast a long shadow and right. my gosh you know yeah. what 
what a man. And sadly, we live in a time where the, the quality of that leadership that he had and that humility yeah. uh, is not apparent in many of our current leaders. Oh, yes. <laughs> sadly. And to make a beeline for the people who are the bottom or towards the bottom of, of the social chain, yeah. as an example... I mean, that's really oh, it was yeah, it was it was just and you and he didn't it wasn't an act, it wasn't something that he thought well this is a good thing to do it was him it was absolutely him and it had been him all of his life, and whether you read when you read the book his relationship with his jailers it's absolutely Mm. all there, and you think when he was subject to such a brutal regime, to to not resort to vengeance, to mm. not resort to a use of violent language, to actually always stay humble. Wow. Yeah. I mean, everybody learn. Everybody should learn from that. Absolutely. To be humble, it's easy to lose sight of that when you become more successful. Totally. Uh, um, but it's also the combination... I mean, this was a man so strong in his spirit. You know, it. So it's that unbelievable sort of combination of strength and vulnerability and humility. Oh, yes. And that that is absolutely what Mandela personified. And that's why he reached millions of people around the world. Uh, and they were touched by him, even when they just, you know, when they, you know, when they released him from prison, when they heard him talk, when they went to the 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 Rugby World yeah, Cup. Absolutely. You know, that moment is like, it is awesome. It is absolutely awesome. And I hope um, that memory of him and uh, and how it should inspire all of us. Yes, that's one almost that's gone into my top five <laughs> favourite, favourite quotes. The mixture of strength and vulnerability. Absolutely key. So you, you knocked off your worst job in local government, worst job in football. I mean, so so. No. <laughs> Crikey, O'Reilly! Yes. Yeah. So, what, so what? But this, you, again, you. This is somewhere that actually um, yeah. gave you the most uh, think, satisfaction. Well, I think you know, Lambeth gave me lots of satisfaction. I think you know, uh, roles give you different different things. Uh, you know, if Lambeth, one of the big parts of Lambeth was going to Brixton and you know, feeling in some ways at, more at home. Millwall, uh, my dad came from Bermondsey. He came from that part of London. So there was something about, I suppose, going back to a different part of my my, my heritage. And the, and that's what I mean about, you know, every organisation has wonderful people. N- nowhere is beyond redemption, in my view. And Millwall had this, yes, and has some challenging fans. It does, as do, sadly, other football clubs. Uh, and that has to be absolutely forcefully tackled but it also has fantastic fans the people who I work with at Millwood it was a family and if I'd said to my head of security a fantastic guy Colin could you just walk over those hot coals for me he just would have done it um, because everybody was wanting the club to succeed um, and I had never in a way I was sort of I was embraced in uh, in Millwall in a way that I was sort of totally surprised by. As this mixed race woman, I remember meeting the fans and my, my, one of my security people saying, "Well, this could get a bit tricky." I go, "No, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine." And um, one of the fans stood up, who you know was pretty, cla- you know, in your mind you think that's a Millwall fan, uh, but actually they are rich and diverse. Um, and um, he he said, "Well, are you a, are you a Millwall fan?" Are you a Millwall supporter? And I said, No, I'm an Arsenal girl. Well, you can imagine. Yeah, there's 700, I think, fans there, mainly white men. And they said, oh. I said, Look, you haven't employed me because I'm a fan. You've employed me to try and get this club out of the deep position. You know, I don't know if yeah, I can yeah. say that word on the radio. You can. But, yeah, it's a podcast. There's a podcast in the deep <laughs> shit. It is in. Um, you know, it's struggling in League One. We're in, you know, serious trouble. And so that's what you've employed me to do. And my task is to do two things, is to try and bring in a refinance the club and, you know, and ensure that this club is promoted. Now, that will happen because a whole series of things and other people need to be doing their jobs. That's my commitment. And, yeah, and that's, we went and, you know, we went, we, we you know, but that my last days were 
great to see uh, Millwall uh, promoted to the championship. So by standing your ground in that moment and speaking truthfully, yeah. did you did did you win them over? Totally. So, well, not totally, well, but yeah, man, no, but absolutely, no, no, because you, one of the things is you should never lie. If I said, yeah, I've always been a secret Millwall supporter, no yes. way they would have said so. So oh. who is the captain, you yeah, know, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. You go, no, so you just don't lie. Don't yeah. pretend to be something you're not because you will. Uh, you know, people are instinctive. Yeah. You know, it's like television audiences. People who try and fake things, are, the audiences just know. They go, yeah. that's the You can sniff thing. it. We can, yeah, we absolutely can. There's something about us as human beings. We go, hmm, no, we're not really sure about that. So I always say, you know, it, women might say well how should I be at a board or you know when I'm turning up in my first day I said you just got to be yourself because if you do anything else it you, you won't you won't you it will become impossible so just don't lie even though there was this moment I could feel my security guy getting a bit closer to me I said no it'll be fine be fine. So your experience at Millwall, a couple of things that struck me there. Yeah, first of all, again, like the danger of labels. Mm. You know, it's easy to label Millwall in a certain way, but yeah. as you say, there are good people everywhere. Yeah. So you know this 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 inclination that we have to lay on a label to a person or a, or a group of people or a club. Yeah, always a bad idea. Always a bad idea. Um, now, are there issues at Millwall around some fans that clearly do not behave in a way that any of us think is appropriate? Yes. Are there fans at Chelsea who do that? Uh, there's just been at West Ham a fan banned for life for a racist video. This happens. It happens because football does not exist in a vacuum. Mm. Uh, it, it, it is operating in a world, sadly, where we know that those views are held by many people. And mm. football has to just stand up and make a stand against it. Mm. Uh, you're the first woman director of the FA. And something that I find very interesting is you said you weren't even hugely into football before your experiences in the game. And that, that would put a lot of people off. Yeah, so a couple of things around becoming the first woman in 150 years to be on the board <laughs> of the FA is, I think, and I had run a football club. I had dealt with media rights. I actually had quite a lot of experience. And, you know, the classic for most women is if they don't tick every box in a job description, they don't apply. Whereas, you know, men will tick two and they will go for it. And women will go, oh, I can't do that because I can't, you know, make the T or whatever it might Although be. Although not all men, because we're not doing labels. Well, we're not doing labels. <laughs> a lot of men. Okay. I, I could tell you the story. I'll tell you this one brief story, yeah, right, yeah. which is... When I was at Millwall, we, I decided that we would you know, we'd run a process to uh, recruit our new manager. And uh, we got all these applications, and I got these applications saying, uh, you know, I have got Accrington Stanley through to the Champions League final against Real Madrid. Now, my knowledge of football is patchy, although my sons are Arsenal fans and, you know, a regular and season ticket holders have been going since they were two years old or whatever. Um, I thought, no, I don't believe that. And you realise that they had been playing uh, FIFA football manager and they thought this just qualified them to go for manager jobs. Now, I thought, well, they went, we were a lower league club. I talked to some of my colleagues in the Premier League and said, oh, no, we get the same. <laughs> so, no, I've, I'm not putting men in a, in a, in a label at all. Um, so I think, so I did have experience, but yes, you're still walking into an environment where th there were others who were steeped in knowledge, deep knowledge about the game. So it's not being put off by, you, you know, OK, no, it's, easy, it's again easy to be self-defeating. Well, and also I think it's about the recognition of transferability of skills. OK, that's good. Cool. And I think that's really, so that, you know, I, I don't, you know, because you've been in this silo means you can't be in that, that, that position over there. Whereas actually, knowing how you build alliances, knowing how you craft, you know, uh, a sort of sense of travel. So whether that was about trying to get more black coaches in the game or whatever it might be, um, how we uh, look to, you know, clearly improve the quality of support going into the, both the men and the women's uh, England teams. Uh, it, it, you do that because you're working with other people and you're trying to find out where they're coming from and where you're coming from. Now, all of that is what go, you go back to swimming in organisations. That's what you have to do because, you know, another quote, you know, go. no one person changes the world. It's how together we change the world for one person. Love it. Right. Love so it. you just don't do stuff by yourself. 
And I think that's what I understood. It was about how do we build alliances, and particularly in football, where you have to have an alliance between the clubs, the leagues, the Football Association, UEFA and FIFA. It is, you know, it is by all of those people coming together and saying this is how we need to change what we do, uh, whether, you, whether you're trying to talk about tackling racism, whether you're talking about the introduction of video technology, you, you, all, you only get it to work. And that's why it takes time and it's quite difficult and painful by putting all those building blocks together. You, again, this is probably an hour's lecture and you may have, <laughs> you may have already uh, touched on it. So building alliances, what's the key? Is it, again, having, having a vision and sweeping people along with it? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's how do you get stuff done? I mean, you, you think, well... I, to get this to be implemented, and I, you know, I'm interested in ideas, but I'm interested in action. To get it implemented, who needs to do that? Who needs to get that to happen? Well, that requires the league or the clubs or the football authorities or the regulators. That, that's how it happens. So to do that, you've got to work with those people and hopefully they, they share and you talk and you build that consensus about sharing that direction of travel. Now, I'm not saying it's all done in sort of nicey, nicey way. And at times you have to be, I go, I suppose I go back to standing the ground. You know, one of the, one of the, I, you know, from my perspective is, I, I suppose when I speak, I can speak with a sense of authority because, you know, I'm now quite an older person. I've got all these, but it is about how you hold a room and you say, we now have to do this. We absolutely have to, have to, bring about this change. We mm. cannot have a game that is diverse on the field and white on the benches. Mm. We cannot have that. Now, we all have to work together to make that change happen. Now, it, the progress is slow, but there is some progress. You know, people like Chris Powell have just gone into Gareth Southgate's team. Michael Jackson's just joined the under-21s. You know, in terms of embedding black coaches um, across the coaching structure, which is one of the things I worked on when I was at the FA, and I, my, you know, the person who took up the leadership, Paul Elliott, fantastic uh, Chelsea player whose career was cut short by an injury, has been continuing that work, and that's what I mean about alliances. Alliances are not only with the people who are sitting around that table at that time; it's also about trying to ensure you've knitted together alliances that will stay when you've left the room. So communication skills are clearly yeah, vital. Yeah, yeah. There's no. I mean, if you can't communicate what you're trying to do, you might as well. But that's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> right now, listen, we're slightly running out of time, yeah. and we've only done about a couple of dozen of your quotes. So I want to get in a few more. <laughs> no, 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 I've done far too <laughs> no, many. No. I am no, 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 becoming no. a walking cliche. No, I, I love them. I love a blooming quote. So, okay, so you always need your own knicker money. Yeah. So my mum was Jamaican and uh, never. She worked before she came over here and didn't and didn't work when she came into this country and felt very therefore. Her independence was absolutely uh, confined by not being able to, you know, to buy her own knickers. And so she used to say, whatever happens, always have your own knicker money. So part of my career has been about having sufficient financial independence always. Don't expect someone else to yeah. ever look after you. Yeah. Always be ready to step yeah. up. And... It'd be nice if somebody did occasionally, but no, <laughs> exactly. Okay, uh, life is to be lived and you've always enjoyed standing on the edge and taking risks. Now, I've really come to realise this, you know, the importance of risk-taking in life. But you want to take risks without being reckless. Well, first of all, I think you have to find your own path. And taking risks is very uncomfortable. So it isn't for the faint-hearted. I think the other thing is, is about what are you taking risks for? Are you taking risks just to be on a joyride? Or are you taking risks because you think you can do something? I suppose, you know, my other value is how do you make a difference? How do you make a difference? What is your contribution? What's the footprint you're trying to leave in the sand before it all washes over you when you're pushing up the daisies or whatever it might be? Mm. And I think, so for me, the taking of risks has been about that. Um, there is another say that's a, that an old chief exec, Max Dupre, who said you only learn when you're at risk. And I suppose I have... You know, and maybe it goes back to failing the 11 plus. I just want to keep learning. And that's why I keep doing things that are in different spaces because I go, OK, I've never been quite here, but I think there's something that I can contribute and I want to learn about here. 
doesn't always work out. You know, I have failed. I mean, you probably learn that again, you know, as we all know, we learn more from our failures than we do our successes. But I do, I think, so I think you have to ask yourself, you know, are you the sort of person who wants to take risks? And what are the boundaries to those risks? You know, I was talking to a woman yesterday who's got three kids, one disabled, and was saying, you know, I've been 20 years in the same place. I want to be somewhere different. I said, but you need the security. You're the main breadwinner because your partner's taking care of your disabled daughter. So how... OK, so we came up with a bit of a plan about maybe taking a day less and working on uh, on how she can broaden her skill set. So she is taking a risk, but it's mitigated because yeah. she's got re- responsibilities. Now, that's, that's what I mean about... You know, so it's not about taking risks. Hey ho, nothing mm. matters because yeah. all, we all have responsibilities, whether it's families and friends and mortgages and all of those things. But it is about saying, I suppose it's you know, on the day of reckoning when you look back, do you think, well, I lived a life? Right. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. okay. That's here, it. Here, we, here we go, Heather. Right. So, so no, I got you on. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see if I've got any any quotes. <laughs> So I got you on, but basically because the thread running through your life is doing the difficult thing and embracing difficult challenges. So in terms of doing the difficult thing, what would be your words of wisdom on that? It's about doing the difficult thing because it has some purpose. It's not just doing the difficult thing. Oh, this is a bit tough, you know. I can't do a Rubik's Cube, you know. Um, I think it's about... You know, when I went to Lambeth, it was absolutely about this place can be and should be uh, different. Um, you know, whether it's the, you know whether it's the work in the FA about trying to support uh, diversity across the game, uh, whether it was working with Eva Canero when she stood up um, against being uh, uh, bullied in the way that she was. Um, I think. And that I, we come back always to your safe harbour, to your values. Mm, mm. So it isn't about just doing the difficult thing for the sake of it being difficult. It is about doing the difficult thing because I suppose I have the belief in myself that I can help to make that difference. And I can't do it by myself. I have to do it with other people. But that's what I think has been my guiding light um and i you know i go back to my parents who said you know well what are you going to do with your life what's going to give it meaning and um you know it's ne- it was never about uh, my bank balance sadly no. but um it was about feeling that you could do things that uh, hopefully makes a bit of a difference and you know there are many many people engaged in that endeavor yeah so you share that journey with some fantastic people heather rabatz dame commander full of quotes full of lessons it was um rich (laughs) really rich so i really appreciate you you coming on it was a joy thank you very much thank you thank you for listening hope you enjoyed this conversation For my newsletter called A New Way of Being, head to simonmundy.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.